Father, we've just sung that you would cause our faith to rise and cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Father, we pray that because often our faith is shaky. Often our eyes are blinded by present circumstances and and our our hearts are very low. Um, We fear the world. We fear rejection. uh, We fear a loss of status. Lord, give us faith and cause our eyes to see, we pray. Build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. There was once a man called Hugh Latimer, ages ago, and um, he was invited once to preach to King Henry VIII. And this was during the time when King Henry VIII was trying to uh, divorce uh, Catherine of Aragon. So a bit of a sort of touchy area. And Hugh Latimer was invited to preach before the king. And uh, slightly awkwardly, his, the, the passage that day in the lectionary was the passage where John the Baptist goes to King Herod to, to call the king to repent of his infidelities. Now Hugh Latimer was like, oh no, how, how am I going to pitch this? And um, he preached it straight. He called the king, King Henry VIII, to repent. And the king was furious, absolutely livid. And, and strangely, Henry, he invited Hugh to come back the very next week to preach again in order to publicly apologize for offending the king. So sort of Latimer didn't know what to do. So he, he sort of, he, the next Sunday he came along, he got up to the pulpit, and this is how he began his sermon. He began it with these words, and he's sort of addressing himself. Hugh Latimer, dost thou not know before whom thou art to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the most excellent majesty, who can take away thy, thy life if thou offendest him. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease him. But consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know who it was who sent you to speak this message? The great and mighty God, who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways. Therefore take care that thou deliverest his message faithfully. Latimer then carried on to preach the exact same sermon he preached the previous Sunday, <laughs> and with considerable more passion and zeal. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Sometimes you read, hear stories like that, and you think, God, wow, some guys are so bold, aren't they? They're just so extraordinarily, have this ability. And, and maybe you know people like that, who just have the ability to, to talk about Jesus so boldly. Have you ever asked yourself, what, what makes them different? What makes them so bold? I mean, honestly, I look at some of my friends in absolute awe, and they somehow manage to turn a, com- a normal conversation with their friends or their neighbors or their colleagues. They seamlessly, shamelessly manage to bring it on to Jesus. And I don't know how they do it. I'm sure you know people like that. What makes them so bold? And by contrast, what, what makes us so timid? Well, we might chalk it up to their characters. We might, oh, they're extroverts. We might chalk it up to their training. We might think, oh, they have all these special, they know all the clever answers to difficult questions. And we might chalk it up to their psychological makeup. Somehow they just don't seem to care what people think of them. And of course, those sort of things, they might have a bearing on our boldness. But we're going to see from our passage today the big reason why some Christians are bold in talking about Jesus. It's, it's not to do so much with their character or their training or their psychology. It's to do with the fact that they know they are citizens. At the top of your handouts, I've put a, a very literal translation of verse 27. Look at it with me, if you would. Uh, right at the top there. In the, in the Greek, it kind of says this. Whatever happens... 
discharge your obligations as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I know many of you are are residents here in the UK, but you have a citizenship in another country. Maybe the United States, maybe Scotland, I don't know. (laughs) Oh no, how? It's a low blow, forgive me. Well, the Philippians were, Philippians were, were much the same. Although, although Philippi was based in Macedonia, they were a Roman colony, which meant that the people living there, they, they were citizens of Rome, even though Rome was miles and miles and miles away, which meant they had uh, certain obligations as Roman citizens. They had to pay taxes to, to Caesar. But also there are certain benefits of, uh, of being a Roman citizen. They had sort of legal protection. We saw that in, in Acts 16, didn't we? Well, in verse 27 here, Paul describes followers of Jesus as citizens, not citizens of Rome, not citizens of the UK, not citizens of the USA, but citizens of heaven. We might live here, but our home's there. We might be proud of our culture and heritage here, but our primary identity is there. We are citizens of heaven. And if we grasp this truth, the effect on our witness, on our boldness, will be profound. I've got three things I'd like to share with you today. They're there on your handout. The first is this. As citizens of heaven, we can be proclaiming even when persecuted. The Philippians were just caught wind that Paul's in prison in Rome. And they would have been worried, as I'm sure any of us would be when we hear friends in prison. So in verse 12, Paul writes to encourage them, to to relieve their fears, if you like. So look at verse 12 in your Bibles. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Strange, isn't it? Paul doesn't go into much detail about his own circumstance or or his health. That's probably what the Philippians want to know. He simply tells them he's in chains. And for anyone back then, they wouldn't know what that meant. These chains were, of course, Caesar's chains. They're supposed to demonstrate that Caesar is Lord, that that Paul's a prisoner being bound to Caesar's will. So we can't expect Paul to say, oh, these chains are a nightmare. It's hindering the gospel going out. I can't do anything here. Pray for my release. But he doesn't say that. In fact, Paul declares that he's in chains not for Caesar, but who? For Christ. His chains demonstrate that Jesus is Lord. He's a prisoner according to Jesus' will. So far from hindering the gospel, his chains actually are serving to advance the gospel. He is exactly where Christ wants him. And I love verse 13. He says, I've shared the gospel with the whole palace guard. Oh, and everyone else. Now, you're thinking palace guard. You might be thinking 12 to 30 men, a small unit. No, 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 no. We know the Praetorium Guard at this time consisted of a whopping 9,000 soldiers. <laughs> Paul says, yeah, share the gospel with the, with the whole palace guard. Oh, and the rest. I, I like to imagine Paul, um, every single soldier who walks into a cell, every single shift, every person who comes to bring him food, he's telling them over and over again that he's on trial for no crime other than declaring that Christ is Lord and that Christ is the real king. Now, what about the church in Rome, though? Paul might be brave, but what about the church? They've just lost their apostle. He's in, he's in jail now. They might be hearing um, 
what's happening to Paul, and they might have lost all their confidence. The bottom might have dropped out. They might be hiding in fear. They might have shut down the churches. Don't let anyone know we're Christian. We don't want to go to jail like Paul does. We might expect that to happen. But in fact, in verse 14, the exact opposite occurs. Did you see that, verse 14? Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Now here's a strange truth which we see repeated throughout history. Boldness is infectious and the timid catch it from the brave. And the persecuted are very often the best proclaimers. I must have told you this story before, forgive me if I have, but a friend of mine was once um, at one of these big international congresses of Christian leaders. And so ministers from all over the global were gathering to, to pray for and, and try and activate sort of worldwide evangelism. And uh, he was there. And one of the evenings, they, they met around tables in the room, and they're praying for different uh, parts of the persecuted church. And my friend was on, on a particular table uh, hearing about the horrific things happening uh, to Christians in the Middle East. And uh, hearing some of these things, he, he stood up and he, and he prayed like this. He, he began praying, Oh Lord, please stop those persecuting your church. And as he took his next breath, a little Middle Eastern man stood up next, stood up next to him and interrupted his prayer. And he shouted out, No Lord, preserve your church, but do not remove the persecution. We recognize that where your church is persecuted, it is flourishing. We pray for the West who have got fat and sleek and who have begun to abandon the gospel because of their prosperity and their ease. And this man continued to pray and my friend sort of slightly, slowly, sort of sheepishly sat down in his chair. The, the Middle Eastern man, of course, he was right. Opposed churches flourish. The persecuted are the best proclaimers. But why? What, why is that? Well, I wonder if it's because when we are opposed or when we're oppressed or when we're suffering, we remember that this isn't our home. That our citizenship doesn't belong here but to a greater country. So just think, what might you lose for speaking about Jesus to your friends, to your colleagues at work, to your uh, neighbours or, or family? You might lose respect. You might lose honour. You might lose status. You could lose your job. Um, some parts of the world, you, you will use, lose your life. But friends, there's one thing we cannot lose, and it's our citizenship in heaven. We're, we're under the protection of a mighty king, far mightier than Caesar, because we're citizens of heaven. So we can, in verse 14, be confident in the Lord. So Hugh Latimer, I began with him earlier, he was, he was confident in the Lord, wasn't he? Uh, calling on Henry, King Henry VIII, to repent. He probably really didn't want to give that sermon. But that was the text fallen to him, and so he preached it straight. But as you might know, King Henry VIII, when he died, uh, Edward came to the throne, but then he went. And, and then soon Queen Mary came, came onto the throne, and she's known as Bloody Mary. She hated Protestant belief, she hated the preaching of the gospel, and as soon as she sort of came to the throne, she promptly arrested Hugh Latimer for, uh, for treason. She tried him, and she consigned him to be executed. And so I believe it was in Oxford on October the 16th, 1555, just outside of Balliol College, 
uh, Hugh, Hugh Latimer and a fellow reformer, a guy called Nicholas Ridley, they were tied to the stake to be burned alive. And as the flames lit their feet, as they prepared themselves to meet their maker, uh, reportedly Hugh Latimer said this to his friend, Nicholas, said this, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. The burning of the reformers was Bloody Mary's stupidest thing to do because the church caught their boldness and it transformed England. Friends, I encourage you, read church history. I encourage you, read Christian newspapers where we hear about Christians suffering and yet proclaiming where they are in parts of the world. And you will catch their boldness. The timid catch it from the brave. As citizens of heaven, we can be proclaiming even when persecuted. But secondly, on your sheets, as citizens of heaven, we can be rejoicing when rivaled. Follow with me, verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that while, they can, while I'm here, I, they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. We don't quite know what's going on here, but it seems as if while Paul's in prison, other Christian groups are starting to move in on his old turf. And note that these guys, they're not false teachers, uh, the guys we meet in chapter 3. No, these are clearly faithful brothers who are, who are preaching Christ, but their motives, Paul questions. It seems they're driven by envy and rivalry. They, they want to make a name for themselves. They're quite happy, it seems, Paul's in prison, because they can sort of move up the church hierarchy, if you like. Even today, it's, it's sad, it's, it's very common to see these sorts of motivations in Christian ministry. I, I know of, um, a number of churches elsewhere, and I'm sure, sure you will do too, where, where the minister is clearly in the business of making a name for himself. He confuses the local church with his own little kingdom. He uh, confuses the congregation with, with his own personality cult. And so when another church moves into his area, he gets threatened. When another faithful preacher comes along, he, he suffers status anxiety. Friends, if you, if you ever hear uh, in the future that there is something called Andy Palmer Ministries, um, you have my permission to hunt me down and shoot me. <laughs> I'm not joking, it's, it's an awful thing. But maybe, and we see it, we see it, we see it all around the place, don't we? But, but maybe we recognize this sort of selfish ambition even in ourselves. As small group leaders, we might compete mentally to have the most successful small group. We might get angry when our service of the church isn't publicly applauded and, and recognized by everyone. We might, we might desire positions of power so that we might be known as a someone in the church. Our own motivations for service are always mixed, aren't they? They're always messy. So imagine when Paul hears that this other Christian group, they're, they're capitalizing on his imprisonment, and, and they're being motivated by a selfish ambition, it could have been massively painful to him. Which is why verse 18 is just so remarkable. 
So he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So there's Paul. He's sitting in his dark, dingy little cell. And rather than bubbling up with frustration, and rather than chewing on his anger and his bitterness and his insecurity, he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed, even by these guys with, with dodgy motives. How could he do that? He must have been preaching to himself the whole time in his cell. Paul, it's not your kingdom. It's Jesus's. You're, you're just a citizen, Paul. Paul, you're, it's not your church. It's Jesus's. You're just a, a servant. In fact, it's striking the way Paul begins this letter of Philippians. Almost every other epistle, he begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He declares his rank, if you like. Here, he begins by saying, Paul, servant, slave of Christ Jesus. I remember about 10 years ago, um, the staff team I was working on, we were visited by a church planter in Newcastle. And he was speaking to us because he was, he was really concerned that you know, young men and women entering into full-time ministry we were going into it for all the wrong reasons. I will remember his talk vividly to the day I die. Um, he, he observed how, how so, so many of us, how strange it was, um, how so many of us felt, felt so called to enter into ministry to, to particularly strategic student centres. So many of us felt called in that direction. So how strange, therefore, that so few of us feel called to the rural areas or the urban priority areas, the nasty bits of town. How strange God would send so many people there and so few in that direction. He challenged us. Is your ambition for Christ or for yourself? Are you willing to become a nobody so that Christ might become a somebody? Are you willing for your name to die so that Christ's name might live. Strange, isn't it? Our, our world tells us that our value and our sense of self-worth, it's all tied up with our rank and our position and our status. And the Christian worldview is beautifully different. <laughs> our value doesn't come from what we do or from what people think of us, but from the king that we serve. We're citizens of heaven. So we can rejoice when, when someone comes to the church and they have the same gifts we do. They might even do it better. We can rejoice when another church is planted just down the road. And many of us live in the area, so we, we have a lot of folk move to that church. We don't have to feel bitter or insecure. We rejoice because the gospel is preached. And we can rejoice when we, we see others seeing some success in their personal evangelism, whereas we're just hitting a brick wall. We can rejoice because it's not about our status. It's not about our kingdom. It's not about building our name. It's about Jesus. As citizens of heaven, we can rejoice when rivaled. But thirdly, as citizens of heaven, we can be delivered through death. Remember that, that Paul is writing from death row. And strangely, his biggest concern isn't that ah, he's going to die fairly imminently. That's not his major concern. Rather, his concern that is that he might somehow become ashamed of Jesus before he dies. So notice uh, how he picks it up, in verse, halfway through verse 18, this third paragraph. He writes this, yes, and I will continue to rejoice 
For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's confident, isn't he? He says, I know, I know I'm going to be delivered. Not delivered from death. It's not like Paul knows there's going to be a prison break the next day and he's managed to get in on the action. He's he's in that. No, he's not going to be delivered from death. He knows he's going to be delivered through death. He's going to be delivered from denying Jesus or, or becoming ashamed of him in his last few days. He's grateful. The Philippian church, they're partnering with him in prayer. They're on their knees for him. And he feels acutely the spirit with him in this time. So he's confident that whether he lives or whether he dies, he'll be delivered from denying Jesus. I don't know if you ever read the obituary pages of of, of the weekend newspaper. I I often do, because often you read some quite extraordinary stories there. But they always, um, well, they often do. They often uh, detail how much the deceased leaves behind um, when they die. Um, and I noticed that regardless of whether the person was very poor or extraordinarily wealthy, they always leave the same amount. They leave everything. When you die, you lose everything. Unless you're a Christian. Unless you're a citizen of heaven. See, even if the, the Christian loses everything, we, we can't lose that. Um, We might lose our lives, but we cannot lose our saviour. Which means that with Paul, we can say the most extraordinary things. Just look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So there's Paul. He's on death row and he's got this dilemma. What should he choose? What shall I choose? If I die, I get to be with my king. I get to enjoy the privileges of being a citizen. But if I live, I get to carry on serving the king. I get to discharge my responsibilities as a citizen. So what do I choose? Paul's got this dilemma. I'd like to tell you about a friend of mine called John. Um, John... He, uh, he used to be one of these hippie dropouts. And so he spent most of his 20s just traveling around Europe, going from one sort of hippie commune uh, to the next. But somehow, I think um, in his like, mid-20s, he landed in, in a sort of, uh, amongst a group of Christians, and they shared the gospel with him. And wonderfully, he came to Christ. It's, it's a fantastic testimony. Um, he then moved back to England, uh, where he became a, a teacher. And he was actually an extraordinarily good teacher. He soon shot up the ranks of his school, and he became a headmaster. I think one of the youngest headmasters in the UK at the time. His school was soon nominated to be one of the best comprehensives in England. He was very good at his job. John was also a phenomenal sportsman. I believe that he was part of the hockey club, the football club, the cycling club, and the tennis club, and the squash club. He's one of these nauseatingly 
capable people who are good at everything and you can't really compare yourself to them. He was also really nice, you know. <laughs> but then age, age 44, John was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and his whole life came uh, crashing down around him. He knew that within half a year he would lose his speech so he'd have to resign from his job. He knew that within a year his muscles would start to waste and he wouldn't be able to do any sport. He knew that very soon he wouldn't be able to swallow even, so as a grown man he would need help to feed and to drink. He expected that within two years he would die a humiliating death by drowning on his own saliva. So he faced a choice, a similar choice to the one Paul faced really. Uh, should I fly to Switzerland and sign in at the Dignitas Clinic and, and receive euthanasia? Or should I carry on living? I won't lie to you, for a long time he considered suicide. But after studying passages like this one, he, he chose to entrust the timing of his death to God. Now my parents, they nursed him over that final year and they, they noticed a remarkable change in him. And not physically, but, but, but spiritually. I think for most of his life he was, like many of us, not particularly bold Christian. He, he wasn't... Um, the sort of guy to invite people to, to church. He wasn't the sort of guy to, to talk about his faith much. Like many of us, slightly shy and reserved about such things. But, but they described how over the course of that year, John became fearless in his evangelism. And I guess it was because of the urgency of his situation. It helped remind him that his home wasn't here. He was a citizen of heaven. And with his home in sight, he realized literally he had nothing to lose. He, he couldn't talk really. He had one of those sort of little machines which you type things into and it, it speaks for him. So he used to share with his friends in a Stephen Hawking voice how it is that they might come to trust in Jesus. With his movement limited, he, he just emailed his old friends, his old hippie friends, uh, calling them to read certain Christian books, to invite them to, to events and things like that. I perhaps shared with you, this with you before, but he even organized his own funeral. Had a little video so he might tell his parents and his, his family, his brothers and sisters, that they need to trust in Christ before it's too late. Like Paul, John didn't want to suffer. <laughs> Who does? He'd prefer to be at home with his Lord as soon as possible. But he knew that the best thing for the advance of the gospel was to keep on living. And you know what? His boldness was infectious. And the whole church were emboldened by his example. And I very much look forward to introducing you to him one day in glory. To live as Christ and to die as gain. So as I close, can I ask you, what are you living for? What are you living for? What is it that, that drives you? Because it would be tragic, wouldn't it, if you went through life living as though this is all there is. As though purpose might be found in our careers or in our hobbies or in our status, or what people think of us. Friends, if that's you, if that's what drives you, if that's your concern, when you die, you will lose absolutely everything. But if you're trusting in Jesus, this life is not all there is. By virtue of Christ's resurrection, you will be delivered through death, which means our, primarily, our primary responsibility in the here and now is to discharge our, our duty as citizens of heaven. Friends, we are ambassadors for Christ in your home, in your workplace, 
with your friends, with your neighbours. You might be the only Christian they know. So if our identity lies with him, if our home lies with him, then be bold. Be bold. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that what Paul writes here would be our own heart. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Father, please move us by the gospel. Move us by a love for our friends that we might be willing to make you known to them. Empower us. Embolden us. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.